0: How Gambling Built Baseball, Then Almost Destroyed It. This was the title of an article written by Rebecca Edwards in 2019. Edwards went on to write that, quote, baseball became America's national pastime because of, not in spite of, gambling. End quote. And historian John Thorne added to this sentiment when he wrote, quote, I don't think you could have had the rise of baseball without gambling. End quote. So how did baseball grow out of gambling? How did gambling nearly destroy baseball? And how are we, today, witnessing the return of this symbiotic and toxic relationship between the two? You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. For a long time, going back to the mid-1700s, baseball was just a game played by children and adults as an occasional pastime. Rules were loose, and people did not really keep track of wins and losses, or statistics. In the mid-1800s, as baseball grew in popularity in rural communities, as seasonal teams began to form, people did what people do they began to make wagers to increase the excitement. Over time, players and spectators gambled on all aspects of the game. And since there were no professional leagues at the time, and players did not earn salaries, they made money through betting. Betting on themselves, or sharing in the bets of others. People bet on everything. Wins, losses, balls, strikes, even how the direction of the wind would change. One foundational element of baseball is the box score, that section of the newspaper where games and statistics are broken down. The creation of box scores and the notion of tracking player statistics was really just a way for gamblers to have more information to use when they placed their bets. The biggest fans in the early days of baseball were gamblers. They were the first to fill the stands. According to historian Glenn Stout, these gamblers waved dollar bills and screamed out bets minute to minute, resembling, quote, brokers on the floor of the stock exchange, end quote. Rebecca Edwards wrote an article titled, How Gambling Built Baseball, Then Almost Destroyed It. Edwards showed how deeply gambling was intertwined in baseball with this line from the famous poem, Casey at the Bat. Quote, a straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternally in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could but get a whack at that, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the Bat. End quote. For a long time, organizers of baseball games supported gambling on all fronts, because with gambling, baseball continued to grow, and more and more people could profit from the game. But the question of fairness began to come into play in the 1860s, when players were throwing games for money. The fix was in. However you might view the act of gambling, for gambling to continue to grow it needs to be seen as fair on some level. It needs to be seen as based on equality, based on players performing on as level a playing field as possible. When it became known that some players were taking dives, suddenly it wasn't safe to place a bet because someone might be rigging the game. And if people could not gamble on baseball, they would not be as interested in baseball. Remember, this was a time before television, before the radio, and newspaper, the media of the time, did not cover baseball unless it served the larger arena of gambling. So, however strange this might sound, when players began to take bribes, this changed the odds, and it spelled disaster for the game. For baseball to survive, Something had to be done. The first major gambling scandal in baseball occurred in 1865 when three players on the New York Mutuals were paid $100 apiece to throw a game against the Eckford Club of Brooklyn. $100 would be a few thousand dollars today. It was enough, anyway, for players to bet against themselves. And what was the consequence of getting caught? These three players were banned from baseball, but later reinstated. The next scandal happened in 1877, when the Louisville Grays, who were doing very well, suddenly lost seven games in a row. After an investigation, it was found that four players had been paid to throw the games. The players claimed they were not being properly paid by management but their appeals did nothing to save them. They were banned from baseball for life. In his research, author Howard Rosenberg found 162 examples of players and teams betting on baseball in the 19th century. And outside of the two scandals I mentioned, there were a few consequences. One of the major distinctions seems to be whether you bet on yourself or against yourself. There is some logic in this. If you bet on yourself to win, you will perform as well as if you were simply playing to win. This is what Cap Anson believed, anyway. Anson was one of the best players of the 19th century, and it was discovered that Anson bet on himself or his team on 57 separate occasions, and not secretly. What happened to Cap Anson? Nothing. In 1905, John McGraw, one of the most famous baseball managers in history, blatantly bet on his New York Giants to win the World Series. McGraw ended up winning $400, but again he bet on his team to win, and there were no consequences. In 1919, The greatest baseball gambling scandal in baseball history occurred with the Chicago White Sox taking bribes to throw the World Series. In past scandals, players complained of management issues, money being withheld, players being cheated, which then led them to cheat. With the 1919 White Sox, there are many stories of bad blood between the players, management, and owner, Charles Comiskey. One story involves veteran pitcher Eddie Secott, who received a salary of $6,000 in 1919, which would be around $110,000 today. Secott had a clause in his contract that said if he won 30 games, he would get a bonus of $10,000, equal to around $186,000 today. From management's perspective, the deal doesn't seem like a large contractual risk at the start of the season, because winning 30 games is ridiculous. After 1900, you rarely saw a 30-game winner. And after 1930, it happened only three times, the last occurring 55 years ago in 1968 when Denny McLean won 31 games. As the story goes, with one week left in the season, Charles Comiskey benched Eddie Sica to prevent him from winning 30 games and reaching his bonus. But this may just be a story. Whatever their reasons, whatever their justifications, eight White Sox players were found guilty of taking bribes. Now returning to this distinction of betting for or against yourselves, It would have been interesting to see how things turned out if the White Sox players had bet for themselves or on themselves. But again, that's not what happened. The players bet against themselves. They received money to take a dive, to not perform. And it was clear from the statistics that at least several of those players turned in subpar performances. Based on the statistics... Famous ballplayer Shoeless Joe Jackson had an outstanding series in the field and at bat. However, Joe Jackson, along with seven other players, were banned from the game for life. Another example of gambling, or quasi-gambling, occurred that same year in 1919, but nothing came of it until 1926 when letters were sent to Baseball Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. The letters were actually from 1919, correspondence between two of the best ball players in history, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker. In the letters, Cobb and Speaker discussed their attempt at fixing the last game of the 1919 season between the Detroit Tigers, Cobb's team, and the Cleveland Indians, speaker's team. Ultimately, there was not enough evidence in the letters to prove that either player had actually succeeded in placing bets and fixing the game. But in the letters, they spoke openly about wanting to fix the game in a detailed plan of how to do so. Nevertheless, in 1927, American League president Ban Johnson asked Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker to resign from the game. Ty Cobb, however, was not one to sit on his hands. He fought back, and he and Speaker were reinstated soon after. Whether baseball players stopped gambling, or they simply became good at it, good enough not to get caught, there were no gambling scandals in Major League Baseball for the next 62 years, not until 1989 and the story of Pete Rose. Known as Charlie Hustle, Pete Rose is considered one of the greatest players in baseball history. Rose is the Major League all-time leader in hits, as well as singles, games played, and at-bats. Rose made 17 All-Star Game appearances, playing a total of five different positions during those starts. He became a player-manager for the Cincinnati Reds in 1984, one of the last player-managers. And in 1986, he retired as a player and stayed on as a manager. This is when the gambling began. In 1989, Rose was brought before the commissioner of baseball, Peter Uberoth, where Rose was accused of gambling on his team. Note. He was accused of gambling on his team, not against, something that managers Cap Anson and John McGraw had done with impunity. Pete Rose denied all charges, but opposing lawyers found evidence that Rose had repeatedly bet on his Reds, and in 1987, he'd bet between $2,000 and $10,000 on 52 separate occasions. Rose was banned from baseball, and despite his many accomplishments, was made permanently ineligible to be elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Pete Rose continuously denied gambling on the Reds until 2004, when he finally admitted his wrongdoings in an autobiography. Rose has repeatedly applied for reinstatement so he can be nominated to the Hall of Fame. But to this day, his requests have been denied. A few minutes ago, I cited an article by Rebecca Edwards. The title of the article is How Gambling Built Baseball, Then Almost Destroyed It. In her article, Edwards was referring to the beginning years of baseball. But as history recycles itself, we can make the argument that something similar is happening. What I'm referring to is the wildfire growth of fantasy sports and, in the last few years, sports gambling, which has been legalized now in 30 states. In the last 30 years, baseball saw an overall decline in interest in viewership and attendance. This makes sense when you consider the pace of baseball compared to other sports like football, basketball, hockey, Now also consider all the distractions we have in our lives, all the forms of technology and entertainment that offer faster gratification. Movies, television, video games, phones, social media. When you consider the fast-paced nature of modern lives, baseball seems to be standing still. But fantasy leagues, which sprang up in the late 1990s, once again provided an aspect of self-interest, skin in the game. Just like those rural farmers in the 1860s, spicing up the game through gambling, a new batch of baseball fans was participating in fantasy leagues. When you have Roger Clemens on your fantasy team, you probably have more interest in what the real Roger Clemens is doing. And with the legalization of sports betting, you now have even more interest and reason to watch a game. So baseball has made a resurgence thanks to these factors, along with the new rule changes that have speeded up the game. But like the 1800s and early 1900s, will there be a backlash? Will things go too far? With sports betting and fantasy leagues bringing billions of extra dollars into the game, will players again be tempted to cheat to either throw a game or overperform. We'll have to wait and see where this new era of gambling and baseball takes us. That's our show. Our music, A Long Way, is by Sergey Pavkin from Pixabay. Good night.